When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Mr. Horrible. Yeah, no, I'm I'm Kyle. <laughs> nice. You like that? That's a good reference. Throw forward. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you do that? I just did it. It, ju- it literally just came to me right now. It wasn't something that I planned. I just blurted it out. Really? It's not in your notes at all? You no. didn't write that down? No. Well, anyway, uh, by the time this episode airs, we will have made our conversion to Pantheon podcast. Yes. And we are hopeful great things lay ahead. That's uh, we're excited about it. Yeah. The great news is for uh, everybody out there who's already been listening to us. Uh, it should be no change for you. Um, literally, you can get the podcast in all the same places you used to get it. You shouldn't hear any difference in the uh, quality of the podcast. And the only content difference you might hear is uh, an advertisement and some plugging for uh, Pantheon podcasts. Yeah. And if you have an opportunity to listen to some of the other podcasts on the network, some great stuff it's all music based oh, so yeah. uh, anything you're interested in hip-hop rock old stuff new stuff whatever but always come back to us that's yeah of course to do that hopefully by this point that you're listening to this we are back to work or at least very close to being back to work from that, the lockdown that would be so great uh, i'm sure everybody's ready i just want everyone to uh, remain safe and if you don't feel well for god's sakes stay home and listen to some podcasts. Right? No need to risk anyone else getting sick. Just even if you have a cold, just stay home for <laughs> crying out loud. Uh, this week, uh, we are talking about a personal favorite of mine and a cult classic 1990 release, Flood, by They Might Be Giants. The Two Johns. Yes. Such rich material that the podcast pretty much writes itself. <laughs> but I'm going to give it a try. Uh, instead of letting it write itself, I'm going to. Give it a whirl and everybody buckle in. Write it. <laughs> Kyle, were you familiar with the this record at all when I picked it? I am, yeah. This is actually I'm sure you've got a good story. Do, do you want me to tell my story first or do you want to tell your story first about how you first heard this? No, you go ahead. Okay. Uh yeah. So growing up, I had a a very good friend, Garrett uh, Garrett. He might be listening to this. I don't know. Uh you need to make him listen. I need to make him listen to this, hold him down, do the clockwork orange thing where yeah. Pry open instead of prying open his eyes, I can pry open his ears. Uh, <laughs> Keep your ear lids open. Everybody. Yeah, exactly. Uh, anyways, every summer he would disappear for two or three weeks and go visit some family up in Idaho, and uh, he would always come back. And like his cousins were a little bit older than we were, they were a little bit, even though they lived in Idaho, which is kind of a you know middle of nowhere, they were much uh, much more in tune with what was going on in the world than we were. And so he would always come back and be like, hey, look, I heard these like three new bands. These guys are great. This blah, blah, blah. And I remember one year uh, he came back and he's like, I bought this CD while I was up there and you guys got to hear it. 
And I remember sitting on his bed in his bedroom, listening to Flood for the first time and being like, what the hell is going on? Like, this is such a, <laughs> it is such a great album, but it's also incredibly bizarre. And it's like nothing else yeah. that I had heard at that point in my life. I was maybe 13 at this point. Okay. So, so I mean, it younger, was, yeah. I mean, May 12, 13 ish. We were, I was still pretty young. Okay. So, but even that, that would have been six or seven years after this came out. So. Sure. Yep. But it, it was still, I mean, just mind-blowing, you know. It was like, holy cow, this is crazy. And then uh, I started to see it, see the music from this in other places as well. And I'm, we'll get to that in a little bit. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of how I first heard of They Might Be Giants. All right. That's good. Uh, first time I heard this record was probably about three months after it was originally released. So it was released on January 15th, 1990. This is my senior year of high school. Uh, I was in the school play, Guys and Dolls. The guitarist in my band that I used to play with was uh, Mike Wilson, if you're listening. Mike Wilson and I had decided this year we weren't going to be in the pit band for the musical, uh, but we were going to try to be in the musical. Seemed like it was a more effective way to meet girls. Ah. In the pit. We were stuck in the pit. <laughs> and if we were in the musical, we were free to roam around during rehearsals and such. <laughs> so we were in the back staging area during one of the dress rehearsals when I saw him locked in one of the practice rooms that was back there listening to something on his radio. I barged in and Birdhousing Your Soul was playing. And I was kind of transfixed by it. And I was like, I asked him if I could borrow the tape, which I did. And now, you know, my poor mother, I can't imagine what went through her head on any given night. So on any, at any time, sometimes on the same night, uh, she could walk past my closed bedroom door and hear Red Hot Chili Peppers, Living Color, Chick Corea. Elvis Costello, Ozzy Osbourne, Depeche Mode, The Cure, which I'm sure threw up a bunch of red flags, that one, <laughs> or this. Look at Harry in the alley by the light switch, who watches over you? Make a little birdhouse in your soul, not to put too fine a point on it. Say I'm the only bee in your bonnet. Make a little birdhouse in your soul. secret to tell from my electrical well it's a simple message and i'm leaving out the whistles and bells so the room must listen to me filibuster vigilantly my name is blue canary one note spelled l-i-t-e my story is infinite like the Longine symphony it doesn't so Fantastic. Right. But hearing that and the incessant tap, tap, tap on the pillows I set up in my bedroom as a makeshift drum set, since I couldn't play in the basement after 9 p.m., um, she probably was pretty concerned about my mental health for a while. <laughs> that's a discussion for another time. But anyway, that's how I first heard them. So let's uh, let's talk about uh, They Might Be Giants. Yeah. So American alternative rock duo consisting of the Johns, John Flansburg and John Linnell. John Flansburg plays guitar. And some bass also does half of the vocals, I'd say. Yes. John Linnell plays accordion, keyboards, various woodwinds, as well as vocals, too. They're both songwriters with whoever is the primary songwriter on any particular song being the main singer. That's typically how they do it. They met while growing up in Massachusetts, and they were both musicians and in bands, but never together in bands at the same time. Yeah. They wrote music together, right? But they didn't really perform together. Correct. 1981, they both moved to Brooklyn and moved into the same building on the very same day. 
rekindling their friendship and deciding, hey, let's form a van. Let's, uh, let's form a band. And <laughs> that's, they, that's called serendipity, I think. I think so. <laughs> I think they were kind of destined to be together. Performed their first concert as El Grupo de Rock and Roll. At a Sandinista rally in Central Park, no less. Do you know what that's Spanish for? Uh, the group of rock and roll? That is correct. Just My, uh, my Spanish is uh, muy bueno. Mm, very nice. The band then assumed the name They Might Be Giants from a 1971 movie of the same name. Turn of phrase borrowed and corrupted from Don Quixote about him mistaking windmills for evil giants. Apparently, too, it was also a friend of theirs uh, was going to use it as a, a name for his ventriloquist act. <laughs> and then he aborted that. So I no offense to the, the Johns, but uh, I think that would have been great. Uh, a name for a ventriloquist act. They might be giants. <laughs> I can't believe you could let him like lose that and then took it from him. You guys you got to take it. I mean, you, you got to take it. But at the same time, it's like, man, that would have been great. Uh. <laughs> From 1982 to 1988, the time before their first album was released, actually, that was released in 86, they engaged in a phenomenon known as Dial-A-Song. Yeah, which I know you are a big fan of. I am. Dial-A-Song consisted of an answering machine that would play back tracks, demos, stuff they were working on. And if you had the number, you could call in and listen to what they were working on. Demos, live recordings, completed songs. It's a cool concept. Uh, last in many different configurations until 2008. Uh, 1986, they released their first record, They Might Be Giants. Self-titled. Right? Why not? Signed to a small independent label called Bar None Records. Uh, it was a minor hit on college radio. Collage. Quote-unquote college radio. Mostly on the back of the song Don't Let's Start, mm -hmm. which was the first thing that I heard of theirs on an episode of 120 Minutes. There you go. The music video for that, too, had pretty good rotation around 87, 88 yeah. on MTV. That apparently boosted them quite well. It was weird. It was a weird song. It was a weird video. It is. And it's the thing that always kills me about that song is the pauses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't let start. Like, ah, no, don't do that to me. It's like, a, it's like a minor heart attack all of a sudden. It's a first kind of window into what I would consider their absurdist sense of humor. Ooh. Not parody. And they're not parody like Weird Al. It's yeah. not parody. They're not trying to be funny necessarily, but their songs are out there. Some of them are funny. Some of them are just nonsensical on the surface. But there's typically a lot of lyrical metaphor. Mm -hmm. Anyway, as part of an independent uh, record label, they were never expecting big sales, and uh, they didn't get that right away. First record sold 10,000 copies in the first year. But on the back of MTV, on the aforementioned 120 Minutes, it ended up selling 100,000 copies the following year. 1988 saw the release of the follow-up record, Lincoln. It also had a minor hit with Anna Ang, which is a great song, which we used to play in one of our bands. We had a like a weird version of it that we did with acoustic <laughs> guitar. It's actually quite interesting. Yeah, it made uh, number 11 on the U.S. modern rock charts, Yeah, which is pretty damn good. Yeah. I, 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 this is something I don't want to go off on a huge rant here, but I always look at that, and for some reason in my mind, I'm like, oh, only number 11? <laughs> but it's like, holy shit, that's number 11 out of... Every yeah. modern rock song playing in the U.S. right now. That's huge. It's big. It was very big. And it, that on the backs of that, they would sell 200,000 copies, put the label Bar None Records on the map, but not so much for the band. Mm. So in 1989, uh, A&R rep Susan Drew for Electra Records approached the band to get them to move to Electra. 
based on the surprise success of Lincoln. The deal was loaded with creative control, access to resources they never had. Essentially, the first two records had been recorded on an eight-track machine that was usually reserved for demos. Hmm. Now they would have access to a legit multi-track studio, and they planned on making the most of it, which they did. Like you just said, it was uh, released in 1990. Yep. I read online, I thought this was pretty interesting. Two-thirds of the budget for this album was spent on producing just four tracks. Correct. Birdhouse in Your Soul, uh, Your Racist Friend, We Want to Rock, and Istanbul, Not Constantinople. Yeah. Uh, which were both, those four were produced by uh, Clive Langer and Alan uh, Winstonley. And they uh, they kind of have a, they almost always work together. Mm-hmm. And they kind of have, have a history of working with... Um, Alt-Rockers, uh, Morrissey is one that they've both done some albums for. Uh, should have written down more, but Morrissey is one that they've done some albums for. Morrissey's uh, a good one. But they both work together, and it's interesting to me that they hired them to produce just four songs in this album. And at least three of them are the ones that are the songs that everybody seems to remember from this album. Yeah, yeah you blew your budget, but you blew it correctly. Yeah, that's a good way to spend it. Yeah. Other thing we need to talk about real quick, the cover art. Yeah. It is a man uh, rowing a quote-unquote boat uh, made out of strung-together wash basins. Yeah. That's part of a uh, – it's a photograph taken by Margaret Burke White. It was a series taken uh, to document the Ohio River flood from 1937. Yeah, she was the first female American war photographer. Oh, there you go. Um, I didn't know that. And the logo they use resembles Yahtzee's logo yes, in a big way. Yahtzee, for anyone listening, is the International Association of Stagehands and – Technicians? Technical, tech, yeah. Tech. Is it tech, technical or technicians? I forget which. I don't remember. Anyways, they're the- Someone this, will correct us. They're the stagehands union, basically. Someone out there will correct us that we know. That That's are like, for sure. oh, I can't believe you didn't know what that was. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Neither of us are unions. So. Right. So, sorry. <laughs> sorry. So, let's go to the- uh, Let's go to a little track by track. Yeah, let's flood it out here. Yeah. Uh, so, first track is the theme from Flood. Yeah. As if you needed a reminder about you, what you were about to listen to, here it is. It's a brand new record for 1990. They Might Be Giants, brand new album, Flood? Correct. Yeah, there you go. You know, John Linnell said uh, about it, it was indeed written as an introductory theme. Uh, it seemed appropriate to inaugurate our major label debut by having the listener pass through a ceremonial archway. <laughs> and it really, like... Uh, Every time I would hear it, I would think exactly what you just said, though, is like, how stoned were people that they put this album on and then forgot what they were listening to and were like, 19, flood. Oh, flood. It was flood that I put in the player. Let me tell you, pretty dang high. (laughs) Sometimes you just didn't remember what you were listening to. Or, or... You had a multi-CD changer. That's okay. That's a possibility. You were so high that you passed out during Ragdoll by Aerosmith. Makes sense. And you woke up and the theme from Flood was playing. I'm like, what am I about to listen to? It's a brand new record for 1990. Oh, it's They Might Be Giant. Oh, album. Thank Flood. God. Okay, I'm good. so glad this was here. Ooh. Or else I wouldn't have known. If I had woken up and like <laughs> in the middle of Sapphire Bullets of Pure Love, I would have been like, oh, what the fuck is this? But... I had a reminder. That's it's it, so it serves a purpose. That's good. That's what I feel. So, second track is "Birdhousing Your Soul," mm-hmm. which we've talked about. First and most successful song of the group's career, and like you mentioned, first time using a proper producer mm-hmm. and two of them, and uh, they used their services accordingly. This song, yeah, 
they were throwing it all at the wall and it paid off. And so the song yeah. tells the tale of a nightlight from the nightlight's point of view. As you do. Which is ridiculous and wonderful. A blue you know? canary nightlight, no, yeah. no less. Composed digitally, so it has a weird snare drum pattern that would be very difficult to replicate yeah. as a person. <laughs> and it's composed in four different keys. Because <laughs> why not? So it's kind of all over the place. And my mom loved this song. And I'm not entirely sure if she ever really knew that it was about a nightlight. I have yet to meet anybody that actually like hates this song. There are people that I, I have met that are like, man, it's okay. But I've never met anybody that's like, fuck Birdhouse in your soul. That's a terrible right, song. Turn it off. Turn it off. I got to switch it every time this comes out. I don't know anybody that it's such an upbeat, yeah. like happy song that I don't know anybody that doesn't like it. I think she just liked it because they said soul a lot in it. Oh, she maybe thought be. I was listening to Christian rock. And that could be. like, no, mom. I'm just like, what? Yeah, they said it. <laughs> no. So. Uh, there's a part in the song that mentions the uh, Longines Symphony. Yes. Or Symphonette. And the line is, my story's infinite like the Longines Symphonette. It doesn't rest. So the Longines Symphonette was a clock radio uh, produced by the Longines Company in the early 1970s. And their slogan was, it doesn't rest, huh. which is the line from the song. So like the stupid clock radio on the nightstand, me, the nightlight with the blue canary on top, will not go and keep the occupier of the room safe with my light. It's actually a really well-crafted song lyrically, if you break it down. Yeah, as are most of their songs, for that matter. He speaks of paintings on the opposite wall that has his primitive, primitive ancestry, and it's a painting of a lighthouse, which is the older version of a nightlight. Makes sense. When you're 18 listening to this, you're not breaking it down that hard. You're singing no. along, and I'm, I don't know what I'm singing. <laughs> and then now, like, oh, that's good. <laughs> that's smart. What, what to me is even crazier about this song, too, is this is another one of those examples that we run across all the time of the song was written before the lyrics. Mm. And that to me is crazy because they I feel like they're so intertwined with one another because of the beat and everything. But I mean, obviously, you can write the lyrics to fit with the song, but it seems to me like this would be something that would be created simultaneously. But it wasn't. The song was written maybe even years ahead of time, they've said. Well, yeah, I think they write bits and pieces of stuff. Yeah. And and how does it kind of craft it together? And like, well, what lyrics fit with this? And just yeah, slap it on top or insert it in. However that works. But it's a it's a it's a classic. It is. It's a classic tune. Lucky Ball and Chain is next. Hey, it's a country song. It's a great country song. <laughs> So unreliable narrators are very common with They Might Be Giants. Yes. Um, they're existent they're on all of their records. They have the unreliable narrator, people that pop <laughs> up and tell a story that turns out to be an exaggeration or not quite the truth and gets revealed to the listener at the end of the song that, that they were kind of making it up the whole time. This is not an example of that. <laughs> this, is, this is the reliable narrator. This is one to trust. <laughs> it's a classic regret. Oh, I can't even talk. A regret song Ooh. about the one that got away. I think it's, it's it's short and great. Yeah, there's not a lot to be said about that song. It's just really, really well done. Yeah, it's a fun little kind of country ditty about a guy who lost his girlfriend or wife. So, what do you got about uh, what do you got about the next song? Uh, Istanbul, not Constantinople, which is actually a cover. By the four lads. Yep, from 1953. I will post a, a link to their original because it is much more. Let me rephrase that. It is much less fun than this song is. It is very much uh, yep. a serious song. 
It was originally written to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the fall of Constantinople Hmm. uh, to the Ottomans. The lyrics were by a guy named Jimmy Kennedy. Uh, The music was originally by a guy named Nat Simon. Uh, And then obviously, They Might Be Giants took it and and remade it. Um, It's very interesting to me because listening to it, you would not know that almost every instrument in this is a sampled instrument, Mm -hmm. except the violin and the trumpet. And it's got a sort of, it has, this whole album sort of has a signature kind of choppy musical sound to it. And it's because almost everything on it was sampled, uh, which is cool to me, yeah. uh, especially for the time that it happened. This is also, I guess, probably the first one where we should talk about to the, uh, the Tiny Toons oh. uh, animation for this. Because yeah. I know a lot of people, I don't know about people your age, but I know that a lot of people that are my age, um, in their mid-30s right about now, Tiny Toons would have been on television. That's a lot of T sounds. Uh, Tiny Toons was on television uh, before we were teens, uh, when we were kids. And they approached They Might Be Giants after this album came out and was successful and said, we would like to animate uh, two of your songs mm. and show them as sort of in between if we don't have quite enough of the the actual cartoon to fill the half an hour slot. We want to show these little animated music videos. And this was one of them. Yeah, uh, And it was it's such a catchy song and it's such a... It's weirdly because obviously, you know, it, the song was 40 years old at this point. Most kids my generation had never heard it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, for it to be something that we recognized from a place that it, what am I trying to say here? We recognized it from something that other people who knew the song from previous generations had no clue about. You know what I mean? Our grandparents were not watching Tiny Toons sure. on Nickelodeon or whatever channel it was on. And so for us to be recognize the song and walk around singing it or whatever and have our grandparents be like, how do you know that song from 30, 40 years ago? I don't know. It was on a cartoon. It was a it was a very interesting <laughs> thing to happen, in my opinion. And it's very uh, it's fun. It's a fun little like animated short. And I will, again, try to post a link to it. Yeah. If I can find it on YouTube. It's a I, I wasn't sure what to think when I heard this when I was first listening to it, because that violin throws you off. It's got that very yeah. old-timey sound to it. But it's great experimental aspect. And uh, John uh, Linnell said uh, said this, when we were recording the Flood album, we had bought these Casio FD1 samplers, basically spent a couple of weeks in my house recording every single thing I could figure out how to record and playing it back on the keyboard. So all these things that you hear on on Istanbul are samples, except for the violin solo at the beginning and the trumpet in the middle. The thing that sounds like an accordion is actually a melodica that's been sampled. In the even old New York part, it's a Coke bottle being blown into a chord. <laughs> so it has a very unique sound, and it's a, it's just part of their experimental nature is to uh, make music out of everything. Yeah. Which is great. I did a little more digging, actually, on the four lads. Um, they're not obviously in their original uh, incarnation since they'd all be in their mid nineties or hundred, <laughs> but there is a, a revamped version of the group that still performs oh. uh, to this day. And besides this song, they were also famous for another song called "Standing on the Corner." Everyone knows "Standing on the Corner," watching all the pretty girls go by. Yeah, that is also their song. So they did have a successful, lengthy career. That is also good. Huh. interesting. Yeah. I, I honestly, I knew that it was a cover song. I had no idea who it was by until we started researching this. So yeah, and me either, really. Interesting. Yeah. Dead. Dead. This is, is the next track. If one, if one wishes to reach the heights of absurdity, oh, one yeah. should probably write a song about being reincarnated as a bag of groceries. Why not? And lo and behold, here it is. <laughs> 
However, if you dig a little deeper than what you hear, this is an existentialist song about about reincarnation. Yeah. Song revolves around a guy who I'm guessing was beheaded, judging from some of the wordplay. That would make sense. And now came back as a bag of groceries. And if you listen carefully, he kind of wavers back and forth between his life being important and his life being worthless. Two sides of the existential coin, if you will. Unreliable narrator. Right. It's a fascinating exploration guised behind this bag of grocery line. And it was hard to like ever explain that yes. to somebody. If if this was playing and I'm singing along, or, did he say he just came back as a bag of groceries? Yes, accidentally taken off the shelf before his expiration date. It would, I, you yeah. don't understand what I'm talking about here? <laughs> I totally did not get this song when I was younger. <laughs> and this was one of the ones that I would always like, I return, skip. <laughs> like the second the song started. And now listening to it now, it's like, oh yeah, there's a lot of layered metaphor. And there's a lot of, he really is talking about, you know, somebody who died and then came back. And it's it's very uh, I feel bad that I didn't get to, I didn't understand it as a kid because I feel stupid. Well, you know, we don't really understand things of this nature, things that are that complex. I suppose that's true. I think we're a little more surface oriented at that age. And uh, it's a fun song. And you're like, who cares what it, I don't care if it's about a bag of groceries or not. I think it makes it more interesting for me to sing out loud. No, oh, definitely. And then people don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And then go, well, you listen to weird stuff. Yes, I do. I yes, just, I do. I just do really love the uh, the really nasal south, <laughs> south, yes. Oh, the south. date, the date stamped date. on my south at yeah. yeah. For some reason, that always sticks in my mind. <laughs> it's the it's a New York yeah. Wah. Wah. So your racist friend is whoa. That's Randy. I'm he's sorry. Not racist. <laughs> Absolutely. He's my friend, but he's definitely not raised. Oh, you're talking about the song. I am. It's absolutely hands down my favorite song on the record. I can see why. It is one of the first times they got political. Yeah. And probably what's funny to me, too, is listening to this now. I think this is just as relevant today, 30 years after this album came out. Maybe more so. Oh, I think. Than it was at the time. And <laughs> that's, I laugh, but it's actually very sad to me. <laughs> So anyone that doesn't know the song, obviously, it's about an outraged party goer who clearly has been cornered by someone at the party with extremely strong and racist views. And the fact that the host of the party allows that person to continue to make those statements without interfering. So here's a piece of it. It was the loveliest party that I've ever attended. If anything was broken, I'm sure it could be mended. This is where the party ends. I just sit here wondering how you stand by your racist friend. I know politics for you, but I feel like a hypocrite talking to you. You and your racist friend. It's great. It is. And it is so I don't know how to describe this other than saying it is it is borderline a reggae song. Like something about it, it just it's right there. And had they added like one more element, it would have been a reggae song and it would have been weird. But they did not add that, thankfully, and it it keeps it not that there's anything wrong with reggae, but it keeps it from being a reggae song, which I don't think would have fit in the middle of this album. 
no, or with it, this subject. And if you take, you have to take out that distorted guitar too. Mm. If you took that distorted guitar out. Yeah, it's probably true. Because it kind of heavies it up a little bit. Best line on the album, in my opinion. Can't shake the devil's <laughs> hand and say you're only kidding. <laughs> that is literally the only thing that I wrote in my notes about this song that I for sure wanted to bring up. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect, though, because that means we're on the same wavelength, which is great. Wow. So I've felt like that so many times. Unfortunately, <laughs> at family events as well. Aww. You have that look of how in the hell can you say these things and how am I related to you? And they have no idea how deeply that impacts you. Yeah. Like sitting at Thanksgiving dinner and just hearing my grandmother, rest her soul, she she was 100 when she passed away, but she was an awful woman with those viewpoints and sitting at Thanksgiving dinner just hearing her say the just the most terrible things and like I I how am I related? Like, am I a ad- mom? Tell me I'm adopted. Please. She's like, no, that's just your grandmother. I'm like, that's not good enough. So it's just how, how like, how do you stand up for that? Yeah. Like, and they just kind of write it off. And I guess that's what we're supposed to do is write it off. But this is someone taking a stand saying, I, you, I can't just let you do this. Yeah. Knock it the fuck off. So, <laughs> so uh, anyway, for as an aside, so the first well, time. First time I saw them uh, was back in August of 1990. Oh, so it was at St. Andrews Hall in Detroit, uh, where I had seen many concerts. And it's a fun, small venue in the heart of Detroit. I used to go there all the time my senior year, mostly because in the basement was a place called The Shelter that used to have uh, alternative night on Fridays uh, that specialized in darker, more goth stuff. And it was fun. The Shelter is also memorialized in Eight Mile. Uh, that's mm. where the epic rap battle took place. Okay. So that was The Shelter. Uh, anyway, this was the last tour for They Might Be Giants. That was only the two Johns. Uh, after this, they had a whole band. Uh, so the curtain goes up, and on the stage, there are two microphones. And in the upstage, in the middle, is a pedestal. On it sits a metronome. And there's nothing else on that stage. John Flansburg walks on the stage, sets the metronome. It rocks back and forth. And then they start the show, play for two hours. And it was riveting because it was. Just those two guys making a racket. Obviously, there were samples being used and stuff. But but you remember that show because it hinged on how good was the music. And two dudes making that kind of music with just all the, all the stage decoration was a pedestal with a metronome, and that's it. <laughs> was one of the best concerts I've ever oh. attended. You didn't need fancy lights. You didn't need all kinds of this and that and all kinds of other stuff. It's just two guys, one with an accordion. One with a guitar who he, he looked like he was having like spastic fits throughout the show because he just he, like he's silly Sam and all the time with his with his <laughs> guitar. And it was great. That's amazing. That that to me is one of those things where it's like when you can when you're at that level where musically you you can just do that and act people actually enjoy it. People want to see it. That's super cool to me. Because you're not hiding it behind, you know, oh, we've got, you know, pyrotechnics and explosions and shit. It's just the music. That's right. really cool. Yeah, it didn't need anything else. Just a metronome. Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. Just the first 30 seconds of the show was just click, clack, click, clack, click, clack. <laughs> and they started with that, with that song. So it was just like, boom. <laughs> 
love it. Uh, what's the next song? Particle Man. Hmm. It's, you know, I look for it on every album. It's the fuck song. No, I'm <laughs> no. just kidding. It's not. I'm, <laughs> it is an Oompa This song, is it, though. right? This is it. This is a, it's a, this might be the song that most people recognize from this album, I think. I, yeah, I, I think that, you know, Birdhouse in Your Soul is the most popular. There's other songs on this album that uh, people recognize. I think this might be the one that everybody immediately like, oh, right, that's They Might Be Giants. And I don't think a lot of people even know that it's They Might Be Giants. I think they yeah, know the song. They just recognize the song. A lot more people recognize it than I thought based on Tiny Toons. Exactly. Like this, is the, this is the other one that they animated for Tiny Toons. And it's a, again, I'll try to post the video. It's It's pretty funny. It's cute. It's like a wrestling match. Between yeah. these four guys. I did write, Kyle will put up a link to the video. Oh, there you go. If he remembers. If I remember. Hey, I took notes, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> I put that in my notes. If he remembers. If uh, if there's not a link to this video <laughs> in the description for this podcast, <laughs> yell at me. It's fine. You can just yell at me via email. As usual, as we've talked about before, uh, people have tried to find deeper meaning in the song. and More of an ex- existentialist time bent type thing. Uh, but I think that's kind of far afield. Uh, John Linnell even said about this song, it's pretty on the surface, you know, and people really, they really want to know what the secret message behind Particle Man is. And there just isn't one. It is what it is. <laughs> like there, there, he said it. He did, uh, he did confirm, uh, confirm, however, that Triangle Man, the look of Triangle Man was based on Robert Mitchum in the movie Night of the Hunter. Yeah. <laughs> he said he looked like a triangle when he took off his shirt. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> it's good stuff. It is. Uh, there's a breakdown part of the song where John Linnell will lead the band in uh, inserting other songs yeah. into it. I don't know if you've seen any of that. I saw the list of songs, but I didn't write any of them down. Don't Cry Out Loud by Melissa Manchester. <laughs> Here We Go Again by Dolly Parton. And even Chandelier by Sia. <laughs> hey, if you can, If you can work that's Dolly awesome. Parton and or Sia into the same song, I think you've you've won the day. Right. That's just me. Uh, twisting. Twisting. It's a normal, really fun, uh, upbeat breakup song. Right? It's so upbeat, and it's about a couple that wants to kill each other. <laughs> <laughs> eh, the way they twist. Get it? Ah. Uh, some really malicious stuff and make it dancey is super cool. Yeah. She set your goldfish free. She blew out your pilot light. So that wordplay is great. Right. Uh, in, the refer- uh, in the song, they referenced the Young Fresh Fellows yes. and the DBs. Mm-hmm. If you actually go back and listen to some of those two bands material, you will see that they borrow from it pretty liberally. Yeah. They specifically said uh, the DB song Amplifier. Uh, very referential. Which, <laughs> which is good. I mean, obviously, nothing's created in a vacuum, so... That used to be one of my favorite lines. I'm just thinking about it in my head now. She set your goldfish free. Just like, <laughs> like there's only one way to do that. And yeah. that sets down the toilet. <laughs> Freedom. <laughs> this song also has a, uh, or used to have a much different drum track. Oh, really? Uh, one of their session drummers and drum programmers, Alan Basozzi, accidentally deleted the drum track to this song, which is why it sounds kind of so digital and weird. Huh. There was originally a, a Completely different drum track. So, uh, this song was used to advertise the WB show Modern Men in 2006, uh, and was also used on a British Pizza Hut commercial. 
which I would love to see. I gotta dig that up so uh, somehow. British Pizza, pizza Hut commercial twisting. Uh, the uh, next song is the aforementioned "We Want a Rock." Everybody wants a rock to wind a piece of string around. <laughs> so I started by reading these lyrics and believing that it was uh, kind of uh, about crass commercialism. Yeah. You know, we can make a ball and a string cell. We can make a pet rock cell. We could probably just make a rock with a string cell. Yeah. Uh, but then when I read into it, it's kind of got this weird stream of consciousness thing going on. And it really doesn't make any more sense to me than the narr- narrator wanting to wear a giant prosthetic forehead on his real head. Everybody wants to wear a giant prosthetic forehead on their real head. Uh, Excuse me, their real head. Real head. Hopefully to back this up or maybe to make me make it make me sound more like a fool. John Linnell had this to say. I guess the song is a metaphor. We who have nothing to wind string around are lost in the wilderness. But those who deny this need are burning our playhouse down. If you put quotes around certain words, it makes it sound more like a metaphor. <laughs> That's all he did. He just, put, he just put quotes around certain words. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that backs me up or if it's sarcasm. I don't know. Uh, and as I started really d- kind of digging into uh, They Might Be Giants, and particularly this record, I started to realize how often these songs were used in TV and advertising. Yeah. This song was used at the end of a Jake Johansson stand-up special. And also over the end, uh, the end credits of a show called Wild Chicago. Hmm. And by the way, if I didn't say it, the accordion really shines on this song. Yes, it does. Which I'm a big fan of because me and my brother and my sister were the only people in of all the cousins on the Shapansky side of the family that did not play the accordion. <laughs> they all did. My dad did. And all the other cousins did. And we used to have to go to those stupid accordion recitals. <laughs> And my brother and I played the drums, and my sister played the flute. Wait a minute. Are you suggesting that a Polish family pushed their children to play the accordion? My my parents didn't, but the grandparents did. Ah. Like, when, Matthew, when's your accordion recital? I played accordion. I got a drum set in the basement. Hmm. How much? I mean, I mean, can you play uh, Roll Out the Barrel that many times on the drum set? I don't want to. Yeah. So, anyway. The accordion in that song is fantastic, and, and I should know. <laughs> With the experience. That's correct. Someone keeps moving my chair, Matthew. My uh, uh, chair. <laughs> it's, uh, this, is, uh, this is Mr. Horrible and the Ugliness Men. That's right. This is, uh, <laughs> this is such, such a, a weird song. And I... It, until I was researching this, it was one of those things where you're like, oh, you idiot. How did you not realize the whole point of this song is that it's about how people will fuss about the stupidest little thing. Like, you know, someone keeps moving my chair around. My petty while, concerns of life. Exactly. While all this horrible shit is going on around you, your friend died and, you know, you, a bunch of milk has spilled everywhere. And you're like, man, eh, but my chair's not where it's supposed to be. <laughs> Someone move my chair around. I don't know where it went. It really, it's a, it's a fun song, right? And you can relate it to most people's lives. And if you take Mister Horrible to be a boss, yes, it's just kind of the viewpoint that he has to worry about different things than the rest of them do, and each group assigns importance as it relates to their worldview. So yeah, it's pretty deep, huh? Yeah. So it was sometimes I get deep. Ooh. So you know, 
working where we worked, our concerns were different than our than than the other guy's concerns. Yes. Because he had to go to the meetings and he was worried about other problems than we were. Which makes but sense. But we look at that going, God, what a dick. He has no <laughs> doesn't even worry about the stuff we worry about. Well, yeah, he doesn't. So, <laughs> so that's that, you know, it's a it's deep. It's also the uh, the beginning to a three song run that I think are all about uh, working class people versus management. Mm, I like this. Before we go there, so yeah, uh, when I was uh, courting Heather back in 1992, courting, uh, I used to make her these mixtapes. You know, <laughs> you want to take a drink there? Sorry, the bottle, <laughs> bottle collapsed when I picked it up. <laughs> So I used to make her these mixtapes, as as you did, as you do, as you did. Yeah. Uh, and because I was so wise, I would try to make them thematic. Ooh. Right? Whether it was about love or loss or stuff like that, you know, having to deal with your parents or stuff, crap like that. I tried really hard to make all the songs carry that common thread. But I hated that it would get really heavy for 90 minutes, you know, 45 minutes aside on a mixtape. Yeah. It seemed like a long way or a long time to take something that seriously. So I started to add... A they might be giants song to the end of every side just to break it up. <laughs> uh, and now I know she remembers a lot of the songs that I put on that on those tapes, not all of them, but I do know that she remembers every single one of these they might be giants songs word for word. And if we started playing them right now, she would sing along and she often <laughs> does. And that's the power of music. Oh, that's awesome. That sometimes take the gravity out of it and just put some levity in and that's what carries the day and that's what makes these songs like really important just ridiculous stupid songs at the end of this eight song string of really heavy emotional stuff and that's what she remembers so i just think it's cool that you were able to have a a, a cassette player in your horse and buggy yeah well you know i mean <laughs> we upgraded uh, oh you had a model t it was the cadillac of oh. of uh you know Horse and buggies. Nice. Back had a little were, badge on Back when it. you were courting. It's courting. That's cool. That's really cool. <laughs> Took her to a sock hop, you know, Ooh. down to the soda jerk. <laughs> You're a soda jerk. We had a, had a soda with two straws. <clears throat> uh, so the <laughs> next song, Hearing, Hearing Aid. Aid. Uh, I love this song. I think this has one of my favorite quotes. Uh, for King Lazy Bones like myself. <laughs> Uh, that I I attach to that quote. I I feel kinship with that. Uh, so I, I don't know if it's the sound of it or the swingy sound or what. It cracks me up uh, every time I hear it. Here's a piece of it right here. Another song about hating your job, turning right. off your hearing aid so you can't hear the boss give you any more instructions. <laughs> Slacking off at work. 
It's got this really weird vacuum cleaner keyboard sound to it. Yeah. And uh, the end of the song is just classic. They might be giants. It's just the dangling end, him yelling, because, because, <laughs> and that's it. That's all. And then immediately. Yeah. Minimum wage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's not that's, a, go ahead. That's, that's like the whole song. Those, yeah. That's all the lyrics, right? It's not a whip cracking. It's not. It's a wet towel. It is a, yes, a mic'd wet towel. Apparently the music is almost identical to Frank Sinatra's recording of Downtown. Mm-hmm. The Petula Clark song, yeah. And it is. I, I listened to it uh, when I read that. I was like, mm, I wonder how close it is. And then you listen to it and it's like, oh yeah, that's very close. Now, I'm not going to say they uh, sampled it and changed it around a little oh, bit. Oh, heavens no. But uh, I feel like they probably sampled it and changed it around a little bit. 47 seconds of pure bliss. Mm-hmm. This is one of those weird songs that uh, I would work this into almost every like mix CD or like playlist that I would make for years and put it in like the worst possible spot <laughs> just to, just to screw just with people jam it like, in there. There'd be, like there'd be some song that just had this really quiet fade out, you know, and then it was quiet for a second. And then all of a sudden minimum wage. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, uh, that's good work. I yeah, like it. I enjoyed it. So this was also used a few times. Uh, it was a theme song for a show called Squirt TV that used to be on MTV. <laughs> uh, and Morgan Spurlock used it as a theme song for a show focusing on his wife and him working for, you guessed it, minimum, minimum wage. wage. Um, now, for me, this has its beginnings in something else. Uh, a lot of the stuff on the uh, previously mentioned dial song were these really short demos, these small mm-hmm. pieces of music, stuff they would like to jam in elsewhere, or just song ideas that were unfinished. So I believe this is one of them. So on their next record, the follow-up record to this, uh, Apollo 18, mm-hmm. there are a lot of tracks on that record. Yes, there 17. are. 17. But then there are also tracks 17 to 37. Uh, and this is what is referred to as the Fingertips Suite. Fingertips are 21 songs ranging from 4 to 28 seconds in which a full idea is presented. It's just really short. Uh, The point was to take advantage of the then relatively new shuffle feature on a CD player. So you press shuffle, you get a full song, then a fingertip or two, then another full song, and so on. So it's this really cool concept, and some of them are really, really good. Yeah. And I think this is the first official fingertip. Ooh, okay. That's what I felt. I love the fingertips on Apollo 18. It is. I'm really surprised that, and I had not ever heard that idea, that it was to take take advantage of the shuffle feature. Yes. And now that makes a lot more sense to me. I had always wondered why they hadn't split that off into like, I feel like that should have been either like a second part of that album or um, like a second album altogether, where that was like, it's just, because that seems like something they might be giants would do, where it's it's a full album. But there's no track more than like a minute long, and it's just all little snippets right. that would all work together. But now that you say that, that's cool. That's really cool that it's designed to take take advantage of shuffling. Yeah, you hit shuffle and you get the statue got me high, and then you and then the next song is you know please pass the milk please, and then <laughs> that's over and it's to the next song. You're like, huh? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> so uh, that's that's my theory on that. That this that uh, minimum like wage that. was the first official fingertip. I like that theory. Uh, Letterbox is the next one. It's just fun absurdity. Yeah. Reminds me a lot of Don't Let's Start. Original, well, it's older. Yeah. It was originally written in 1980, according to John Flansburg, when they were, quote, young and good. 
Uh, they started performing this live in 1985, so by the time they recorded it, it required very few takes. According to John, Electra Records knew what they were getting when they signed us. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's just good. Yeah. Can't find anything else to say about that one. There's not much to say about that song. Yeah. But Whistling in the Dark, however. Yes. There is only one thing that I know how to do well. And they, I've often been told that it should only... Do the things that I know how to do well. Wow, yeah. And that's be <laughs> It's hard. It is. The phrasing is unusual. No. Right? Who'd have thought? So it's about two guys sitting around talking. In a jail cell. Right. As John pictured it, it's a, it, the whole song is basically a, a, a slow pan back of a camera to reveal <laughs> that there's two guys having this conversation in jail. And my favorite part of the song is that gigantic bass drum sound. It sounds like a massive marching band bass like this. A woman came up to me and said, I'd like to poison your mind with wrong ideas that appeal to you, though I am not unkind. She looked at me, I looked at something written across her scalp. And these are the words that it faintly said as I tried to call for help. There's only one thing that I know how to do well And I've often been told that you only can do what you know how to do well And that's be you, be what you're like, be like yourself And so I'm having a wonderful time but I'd rather be whistling in the dark Whistling in the dark, whistling in the dark, whistling in the dark <laughs> Go ahead I was gonna say, I didn't, I unfortunately did not write down the actual quote, but uh I remember this. Uh, I remember reading a quote doing some research for this, saying that they wanted that sound to be louder and boomier, and they kept trying to do stuff to make it louder and boomier. And uh, one of the Johns said, "You know, we. I don't think an atomic bomb going off would have been a loud and booming enough sound <laughs> for us when we were recording this." Hmm. I think it would have been. Think so. Maybe. But that would be boomy. It would be very boomy. Hacha. Hotcha. So the Giants venture into jazz. Yeah. Musically, it's such a cool song. Great swing vibe, jazz chords all over the place. Yeah. But then it finishes with all these samples and weird discordant sounds. <laughs> John says, sampled the sounds of mallets hitting a kitchen mm -hmm. sink, incorporated the sound in. Uh, you know what the title is based on, right? I Oh, shit. I read this. Go ahead. So the title song is actually the name of a wooden horse. In a game called Derby Day. Mm. Uh, it was made by Parker Brothers around the same time as the original Monopoly came out. And Flansburg and his brother used to play it quite a bit. He said that the name just fit rhythmically with the way they wrote the song and really has nothing to do with the song at all. <laughs> so, best line of the song. Do you have the best line of the song? I do there? not. Drink and cook the prodigal son. Fondue forks for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> This, oh, that's so good. This is another one of those songs. Uh, I knew somebody, and I, I've I've been racking my brain for about a week trying to remember which one of my friends really liked this song because it would end up on a lot of mixtapes and stuff as well. And I can't for the life of me remember which one it was. But I remember this would come up a lot when we'd be driving in somebody's car or whatever. Mm. But it's a fun song. It's a, like you said, it's a jazzy little number. I know. I dig it. Uh, Women and Men. The actual fuck song on this album. <laughs> So it's a song about re reproduction. It is, but it's like reproduction 
to me, this feels like a priest and a nun with some dolls trying to explain to a Sunday school <laughs> what happens when people <laughs> like this is how you pair up. You, two by two, you go into the forest and then three people come out. Right, I don't know. Three by three, four by four. Yeah. It's like exponential growth. Yeah. Song about the expanding po- population. The river grows, the uh, the river grows, it becomes a sea, and then on the sea float women and men. Something like Something that. Something like that. It's a good song. It is. Uh, it's a, it's almost a sea shanty. Almost. Almost. A lot of these songs are almost something. Fun little tidbit Ooh. about this song. So there's a bar in Baltimore, Maryland called the Woodbury Kitchen. On the walls outside of the bathroom are printed or painted all of the lyrics to this song <laughs> outside of the women and men. <laughs> so that's cool little tidbit if you're ever in baltimore or you are currently in baltimore you should go there if you can <laughs> could be could be locked down i don't know what the maryland situation yeah. is right now eventually someday go there patronize them yes please do tell them that audio judo sent you yeah and then maybe eventually in some future time we'll get a free beer or something when we yeah, go i do like free beer this is going to be a 40-year build-up to one free beer each yeah <laughs> totally worth it my favorite named song Oh, this is a great name. Sapphire Bullets of Pure Love is it's a great <laughs> name for a song. Uh, super cool sound. I love this song. It's identically named after a song from 1973 by the uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra. The Mahavishnu Orchestra. Which there's a super short instrumental on the mm. record and super dissonant and weird. Very strange sounding. Wait, are you suggesting that the Mahavishnu Orchestra does short and weird and dissonant sounding music? That is what I am suggesting. I would have never guessed that. It doesn't sound anything like this version. This is such like this, the, not the lyrics, but the melody for this song sounds like something ripped out of a Nintendo game. Oh yeah. Like, or like a Sega game. I mean, it really like an early nineties Nintendo or Sega game, just the dun, 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 that sounds like the type Mm. of beat you would see in one of those games. I could see that. It's always felt like that to me. Someone should jam that into a game. Someone probably has. Have the Johns ever done a video game soundtrack? I didn't look that up. I don't think so. No. That would be something cool for them to do. They did, however, do uh, the music for the SpongeBob SquarePants. I'm um, not to jump ahead here, uh, but they did the music for the SpongeBob SquarePants. The musical Broadway, the yeah. musical, yeah. And I think they were nominated for a Tony, but did they win? No, they did not. Okay, they might be giants. Also, have a, a cover band of themselves that they play in. Ah, um, the name as, of, as you do. The name of the cover band is Sapphire Bullets. Ooh, also. In 2020, they started performing a different version of this song called Stilube, which is the entire song sung and played backwards. So Stilube being bullets backwards. Wow. First of all, that's awesome. And second of all, that's a tremendous amount of work (laughs) to learn that song completely backwards. (laughs) I'm going to have to look that up. I have not heard that. That sounds really cool, though. Stilube. So the next song is they might be giants boy because every band needs a theme song right i feel this is a very much in the hey hey we're the monkeys that's funny that's exactly what i wrote down 
which makes it much cooler. Yes. So I, th- go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the one thing that uh, I'm a little disappointed about uh, looking up the lyrics for this. I, since I heard this song, thought it was frying up a stock of weed. No, wheat. 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 A stock of wheat. And I'm like, oh, well, that you doesn't. Frying up a stock of wheat. That's not as fun. But still, it's, it, it, it's a fun song. <laughs> so this song was written in 1985 prior to their first album. Makes sense. Um, they said it was too weird for the first record. <laughs> and also, it makes much more sense in the paradigm of the band that their theme song would appear on album three. Makes sense. So there's a reference in there to Dr. Spock, Mm -hmm. not Mr. Spock, but the pediatrician uh, who kind of pioneered baby care. And according to uh, John Flansburg, the opening sample, Hang On Tight, that keeps playing throughout Hang On Tight, was from a self-help cassette that they bought from a thrift store for a dime. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Right? There's so much just good stuff. (laughs) What the hell kind of self-help tape? Hang Hang On on Tight. (laughs) We're about to get into the world of self-help. Oh, I self-actualization. I want to find it. It's like oh, a, one of those lifelong journeys trying to find that. I buying uh, every self-help cassette I <laughs> can find just to listen to it. I found it. Wonder if so. When I was a very small child, my sister used to listen to music when she would go to sleep from like I don't know three until maybe she was ten or twelve years old. But, you know, she was a kid, so it was kids' music most of the time. One of the things that she found was a cassette that my dad had that was a relaxation cassette. It was just this guy telling you to do, like, breathing exercises and things. Mm. And she would listen to that all the time to go to sleep because it was very soothing. But he had, like, the – he had a very deep voice. And he would tell you to, all right, now we're going to do gentle breathing exercises. Ooh. I wonder if it's the same uh, same guy. I mean, I'm sure it's not. But – could so, be for some reason uh, that felt important. It could be. You should you should uh, see if you can see track it. it down. Yeah, I'm, I think my mom still has it, so I'll have to see if I can find it and then find a cassette player and then find a way to rip a cassette to digital and I rip have, it to digital. I have a I'm way. Sh- I figured you would. I have a way. Uh, the last song of the record, "Road Movie to Berlin." Such a weird song to finish on. Yeah, but very fitting for the band in general because they do things kind of uh, outside the box. Yeah. They wrote this at a time when they thought the Berlin Wall would stand forever. <laughs> and it has that just that has that I just walked into a bar feel. It just kind yes. of slosh, sloshes its way along. John Flansburg actually said about it. He said this song was designed to feel like a fragment of some barroom song just starting up again and again. Uh, even though the verses resolve, there's a little bit of tension that is left hanging each un- hanging each unsettling. go. Or, I'm sorry. Each go round. And that hopefully is a bit more unsettling with each verse. Uh, my voice has slowed down, which is kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but it really does. There are points where like a verse ends and you're like, eh, that pause was too long. What the hell just happened? Uh, fun little things about this song. It uses every single note of the chromatic scale in it. Wow. Yeah. Also, Frank Black does a cover of this song that is really interesting. It doesn't sound anything like this at all. So check that one out too. So post-flood, their career had ups and downs. Uh, They've never been able to repeat the success uh, commercially of this record, but they won two Grammy Awards, uh, one of them for the theme song to Malcolm in the Middle, Boss of Me. Oh, cool. Uh, They've been nominated for a Tony Award, like you said, for SpongeBob SquarePants Broadway Musical. They've released 18 studio albums as well as five very successful children's albums. 
And in 2019, they announced the long-awaited return of Dial-A-Song. Yeah. So this year, they were supposed to do a 30th anniversary tour of Flood. They even got a few dates in before the lockdown. And I would imagine they're going to resume that. Yeah, here's open. Yeah. Right? And that's a that's it. I mean, a lot could be said about not taking yourself too seriously and just writing what you write about and not trying to be something that you're not. So uh, I love their songs and that kind of escape into the absurd and surreal when you don't want to think about stuff or be brought down by heavy lyrics or what have you. Um, so that's Flood. There you go. So hopefully you enjoyed that. Uh, if you have some comments for us or uh, tell us about your Flood experience yes, or please. where you heard it, uh, let us know at info at audiojudo.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at uh, Facebook.com forward slash audio judo. There you go. Uh, Twitter at audio judo, Instagram at audio judo. Uh, you can go to our website, audiojudo.com. We've got a store now. Yeah. I'm starting to sell a little bit of merch. Yeah, buy some T-shirts, stuff. stickers, mugs. Mugs. Uh, I don't know coffee, if the you face masks are in stock oh, yet. Oh, yeah. You got to get one of those. I would. Yeah. It's got Matthew's face on it. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. It's just our logo. <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty amazing, though. That would be cool. It's just your face on it. But uh, let us know what you think. Please. And uh, tell all your friends. And uh, we will talk to you soon, everybody. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.